In chapter 7, we saw some really incredible promises that God had made to David. And one of those promises included a land, a promised land from God to his people, a land that would be without any threat of wicked men constantly harassing them. And so in chapter 7, you get the promise of a land, and then in chapter 8, we see that fulfillment uh, occurring. In fact, in chapter 8, what we actually see is we actually see a list of, of David's different military victories over his enemies in, in the land, uh, in this particular promised land. They take place at different times with different enemies, different people, uh, over the period of his entire kingly reign. Now, I, I want to warn you that chapter 8 is one of those passages that it's really easy to want to kind of pass over. You know what I'm talking about, right? When you're reading through the Bible through a year and you sit there and you get to a chapter and like, well, this is really, really good. And then you get to a chapter like this and you're like, I can't pronounce the names. I don't understand these places. There's a lot of gruesome things going on. And you just want to skip over it because it's hard not only to understand, but it's really hard to understand what in the world could this possibly have to do with us? Is there any significance for us today? And so oftentimes we skip over it altogether, but of course we're trying to be honest with the text. We know that God, all the Word of God, is God's Word. Amen? It's, it's profitable. It's needed. It needs to be preached. In fact, I think a part of the, the problem that we see even in the church, not only our church, but around the world, is because people are shying away from difficult texts. Well, this is one of those difficult texts that's filled with hard names and places we're not familiar with and cumbersome details. And, and again, it's just hard to understand how exactly it would apply to us. However, what I want to remind you, what we need to keep reminding ourselves as we work through the book of 2 Samuel is that the kingdom of David ultimately represents the kingdom of God. What is true for the kingdom of David is true for the kingdom of God. The principles that we see at work with, kingdom, with, with this kingdom coming to fruition and, and him reigning in, in a way is true for the same principles by which God brings about his kingdom and rules and reigns over his kingdom. So this story is not simply about what David did. Rather, it's a story about what God did and what God will continue to do until it's ultimately completed. So there are two things that we see within the text today that are true for the kingdom of God. Let me give them to you. Number one, victory is the king's. Victory is the king's. Now, here's how I'm going to do this. Uh, the, the easiest way for me to explain this is to sum things up and not to read every single line. Would you agree? You better say yes or it's going to be a long service, all right? Uh, and so, so I've got to sum it up. So let me try to do that for you. In verses 1 through 6 and in verses 13 and 14, we see the list of all the enemies that David ultimately defeated. And, and some of them we're familiar with. Some of them we're not familiar with at all. And, and, and so, look, for example, we see the name of the Philistines. We're most likely familiar with them. We know that they had presented the greatest threat of Israel, uh, that of all of their different enemies, and they had given them a fit all the way from, back from the time of Samson. Now we see that David defeats them, and it's a final blow to where at this point after his reign, they never really struggle with the Philistines again. 
We see the Moabites. We're a little bit familiar with them as well. They're the longest, uh, longest traditional enemy of Israel. But yet again, David comes and he defeats them, never to struggle with them again. Then there are a bunch of names that we're really not nearly as familiar with, like the king of Zobah, the Syrians, the Ammonites, the Edomites. They might sound faintly uh, um, familiar, but not really sure exactly what to do with them. We read about them in verses 13 and 14. But here's the key. If you really want to know the significance of this, what you need to do is you need to plot all of these different names and these different enemies on a map of Israel. If you were to lay them out, what you would find is they would extend from the northernmost part of Israel to the southernmost part of Israel, covering the entire land. It's the author's way of telling the original audience this, is that God is faithful to do exactly what he said he would do, that he would give them a land, and that land would be safe from wicked men who were constantly trying to frustrate God, his will, and the people of God. This is the promise that we see through fruition. That's the, really the, the lesson over and over again through God's word, isn't it? That what God says comes true. Would you agree? Say amen. All right, what he says ultimately comes true, and we see that promise being fulfilled over and over and over again. So that's important to this text, but you know what else is important to this text? Not only what he did, but how he did it. God did not have David establish this kingdom through passivity, but rather through force. This is, by the way, why I was nervous about preaching this message because this is not one that everybody's like, oh yeah, preach about God coming and killing everybody. That's a great message. That's what I like to hear. But in the text, this is what we see. It wasn't by passivity, but instead it was indeed by force. There are some exceptions in the text. In fact, if you go back and you read, you read about this guy by the name of King Toy, and he, he's not going to fight the king at all. He, he bows his knee to God and basically says, here, come on in. I, I receive you as king. But that's the exception, not the rule. There's a spider web right here, and it's driving me nuts. All right, got it. All right. Uh, anyway, and so... So we, in order to be able to move on, we must get rid of the spider webs. And so, so, um, so the idea is this king toy, he bows, but everybody else, they don't bow. Instead, they fight the king. In fact, listen to this. Five times in this text, in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 5, and verse 13, the Hebrew word, which literally means to strike or to smite, is used in this text. What's the significance of this? It's a reminder of a truth too often ignored according, uh, concerning the kingdom of God. Jesus will reign over all people either willingly or by force. Either willingly or by force. See, it wasn't as though David's enemies were waiting on great anticipation for David to come and to rule over them and to defeat them. Any more than the wicked heart of, uh, of man desires for Christ to come, his kingdom to come, and for him to impose his will on them. The sinful man and the sinful heart of man doesn't look to ways to submit to Christ. The sinful heart of man looks for every way to not to submit to Christ and is even willing to do it to the extent of their demise. That's how much they don't want to follow the submission of God. We see this in the Bible in Revelation chapter 6. There is a, a really haunting illustration there for me. In the illustration, really, if you're not familiar with the book of Revelation, it's basically telling you how God wraps this whole thing up. How from the beginning of time, now he's going to wrap it up and he's going to take everything that's upside down and he's going to put it right side up. 
And there, there the, 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 one of the disciples, John, he, he, he sees this vision. And in this vision, he, he sees a, a, a scroll. This scroll is the title deed of the earth. In, in other words, it's, it, this title deed is given to whoever has the right to rule and reign over the world. He's the owner of the world. And so he looks around in heaven and earth. He can't find anybody. He begins to weep. And then finally somebody appears. His name is Jesus. And then Jesus has the right. He is the owner of the world. He has the right to reign. He opens up the scroll. But when he opens up the scroll, it's full of various judgments. And one judgment upon another begins to come on upon those who would refuse to repent. And in that text, in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 15, we read about their response when this judgment comes. Listen to this. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who's seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for, great, for the great day of their, uh, uh, of their wrath has come. Who can stand? Who can stand? The answer to that, nobody can stand when he comes to bring about his kingdom here on earth. Nobody can stand. Now, there's two things that stick out to me. Two things that stick out. One is the hardness of God's ultimate judgment. What we find here is it's so hard because these men would rather to be crushed by rocks and have mountains fall on them than for them to be able to face the impending judgment of God. That's harsh. But we also see and are recognized the hardness of man's heart. I sit back and I think to myself, they don't have to be crushed with rocks. All they have to do is bend the knee. But they don't want to bend the knee to Christ. They would rather be crushed by rocks than to submit to Him. Again, the hardness of the heart. Well, let's face it. We tend to ignore pictures of Christ like this, don't we? We, we, we much more prefer to be able to think of Jesus in swaddling clothes, wrapped in, wrapped in swaddling clothes in a manger, is just a little, look at little baby Jesus, such a wonderful, look, he's, he's so cute, look at him. Or Jesus on a mountainside with, with kids in his lap, or Jesus feeding people fish sandwiches, and, and, or, or, or even, even willing to be able to see Jesus on a cross, be able to picture him in that way. This is not a way that we want to view him. We don't want to view him as we see him in the book of Revelation when the Bible says when he returns, he returns on a white horse, wielding a sword and slaughtering people to the point that he slaughters so many that the blood flows in a way that raises up to the, to the length of the bridle of a horse's uh, uh, bridle. All the way up. I don't even know how that works. I don't even know how that's possible. But when we look and we hear about like things, we often shudder. And I know the first thought for me is, and what some are probably saying is, why would he be so harsh? Why would David be so harsh? Why would God be so harsh? Isn't there another way? Isn't there another way to be able to bring about this kingdom? Isn't there another way to be able to give a land for his people whereby they're no longer harassed by those who are wicked? Is there another way to be able to create this place where all people are submitting to him? And, say, and people would sit back and go, well, yeah, why can't God just show greater acts of kindness? I mean, maybe you and I, maybe we can get more people to come to faith in Christ if we just bake more pies, bring people a pie, you just need a pie. Here's some nice things that we can do. And, and, and some people begin to think, if you're just nice enough, 
as a Christian, then everybody will eventually become to faith in Jesus Christ. Let me ask you this. Has God not already shown generous acts of kindness to all who are lost? By giving life? By giving breath? Giving food? By giving clothing? By giving health? By, by, by giving the joys of this life, of marriage, of having children, of, of friendships, all of these, all while when we were lost, let's remind, in high-handed rebellion against God, He was still gracious enough to give all of those things despite how we were rejecting Him as King. All of these things is where we are. And then, and then let me ask you this. If, 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 if a lost world does not respond to the kindest act ever of him sending his only son to die on a cross to be able to take away their sin, what act of kindness will a lost world ever respond to? Maybe another act of kindness. Or maybe God can just be a little bit more patient. A little bit more patient if he... If he would just hold off a little while longer, uh, and then maybe, maybe something will ultimately happen here. And this might be true. I have quite a few conversations with people, and they ask this question all the time. Pastor Mike, don't, don't you just feel within you that, that the return of Christ, it can, it, it's going to happen any moment. It's going to happen in our lifetime. In church history, you'll find that every generation believed that God was coming back in their lifetime. First generation, they believed absolutely that God was coming back in their lifetime. Anytime somebody stubs their toe or has a toothache, they believe this has got to be the sign to the end, all right? And so we, 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 be, we better get ready. And so the way that I, instead of getting into a deep conversation, by the way, I preach on these things so we don't have these weird conversations. Hopefully you hear them. But when somebody comes and says, don't you think he, he, he's, he's coming? He's, he, he's got to come in a year, I'm telling you. This new election cycle, you be, watch out, he's going, to be, he's going to be coming. And I just say, you know what? You're right. I, I will say this that his return is imminent. People go, oh yeah, then you agree with me. No. What, what, what I mean is, by imminent, I mean he can come at any time. We got to be ready. And people sit back and they'll, sit and they'll say, well, why doesn't God, why doesn't he just give more time to people to be able to repent? And my answer to that is, how can he give them any more time than he's already given them? He gives wicked mankind their entire life to repent. To the moment before they die, he gives them all of that time. Throughout all history, he's given man time to be able to repent. Literally all of human history has been a time for him to be able to repent. 2 Peter 3.9 says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise at some count slowness, but is patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You know, my dad used to have this statement. He had a lot of them. Some I liked, some I didn't. This is the one I didn't like. Is when I was a little bit disobedient or a lot of it disobedient, and he would say, well, son, look, um, you're going to clean your room, and we could do this the easy way or we could do this the hard way. And I never actually asked him what the hard way was, which I, which I think would probably be the good thing because I think he would say, I can't tell you, I have to show you, and I would never want that to be able to happen. But his whole point was, this is going to happen one way or another. And Jesus says, on that day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And it will be done either willfully or it will be done by force. I sit back and I think to myself oftentimes of how long... By the way, some of you are probably sitting here and you're like, man, I invited a friend and this is the message that he pulls out. 
or they're visiting and they're like, man, that guy could really sing, but what in the world was that after he was done? (laughs) But this is why we go through the Word. We go through the Word of God because this is truth, whether our ears are bent or want to be able to hear it or not. And as I begin to think, I begin to sit back and I begin to think to myself, how good have you been to people at Mercy Hill who still come oftentimes week after week or once every four weeks or once every two months and they come and you have been ever so good and yet they have never yet repented. They have never turned from their sin and placed their faith in you. And you have given them all this kindness and showed all of this kindness and, shown, and given them all of this time and all of this time. But even in your kindness and in your patience, they still have not returned and come and repented to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And so it's just a time for us to be able to stop, even though people want to hear a message about their billfolds and, and, and how they can get a better job and don't worry about the one that you're in and, and your best life now and all these different kinds of things. God is still has a message for all who are here that he has been patient and he has been kind, but there comes a time when you will not be able to just come willingly that you will be made by force. May today be the day of salvation. Number two, Ryan, do you see why I said I was nervous about preaching this message? So first of all, what do we know? We do know that the victory is the king's. The second thing that we know is to the victor goes the spoils. After David defeated all the enemies, he took possession of their wealth. This is, we see this all the way through the chapter. Again, chapter 7, we see that he defeated the Syrians. They bring him tribute. They bring him money. Uh, we see, again, in, in the form, one of the times it's in shields made of gold. Another time we read in verse 8 that somebody brought them mu- very much bronze. Verse 10, these defeated enemies bring them articles of silver and gold and of bronze. Interesting thing, when you read, uh, when you read 2 Chronicles chapter 22 and verse 14, or 1 Chronicles 22 verse 14, he actually shows how much he actually collected at this time. Shows the, uh, the cumulative amount of these acquisitions was huge. Let, let me give you an illustration. David collected there in, uh, during this period of time 100,000 talents of gold. That's 7.5 million pounds of gold. It's 75 million pounds of silver. That he collected. Now, what do you think after all of this? What do you think David did with all of this newfound wealth? I always find it funny when people talk about, you know, the lottery and somebody wins the mega lottery. Listen, any lottery that I would win would be mega. All right, doesn't matter, whatever. But they're talking about like 800 million and everything. And it's funny because I, I don't know if people are bitter because they played and they didn't win or they're jealous, but people will say something to this effect. $800 million, how are they going to spend all that money? You can't spend $800 million, and I don't know if it's because I'm materialistic or God's still working on me, which clearly he is, but I kind of sit back and go, I think I could do it. <laughs> I, I, I'd like to try that, at least. I'd like to maybe try, or I could at least take a big chunk out of it, and I could think of a couple things that I'd like to be able to at least try to do with it. But the truth of the matter is, is when he collects all this, what, is, what, is, what does he do? Verse 11 tells us he dedicated them to the Lord. He dedicated them to the Lord. In 1 Chronicles chapter 22, again, same verse I referred to just a couple minutes ago, it says that he actually entrusted them to the priests, to the Levites. He gave it to them for their overlooking and the protecting them for the Lord, the scriptures say. 
We also find in 1 Kings chapter 7 and verse 5 later that he used this wealth, his son used this wealth to ultimately be able to build uh, the king or build the, t- the, um, the temple. You might wonder, and I did too for quite part of the week, what in the world does any of David beating up people and taking their milk money have anything to do with the kingdom of God? Well, actually it has a lot to say about the kingdom of God. It's interesting because of how much we learn as we go through scripture like this and we study how much stuff we learn that we've never known before. And we found that in the Old Testament that there are prophecies concerning the end days. They're called eschatological prophecies. It's what's going to happen at the very end time when God finally says enough, I'm bringing about my kingdom in heaven as it, or on earth as it is in heaven. And when he comes apart at this time, it's interesting because at least two different Old Testament prophecies talks about at that time that people from all over the world will give tribute to the one and only king. Interesting thing. Listen to this. Isaiah chapter 16 verse 4 says, Lift up your eyes all around and see. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from afar and your daughters shall be carried on their hip. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and exult because the abundance of the sea shall be turned to you. Notice this. The wealth of nations shall come to you. It's talking about at the end times. Haggai chapter 2, verse 6 through 9 says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth. I I think of a kid with their piggy bank trying to get that nickel out of that piggy bank, just shaking it back and forth. And and he says, says, "For, For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more in a little while I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land. And he says, and I will shake all nations that the treasures of all nations shall come in and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. So the picture of the kingdom of God coming has two parts to it. It's the bending of the knee of all people and the presenting back to God what is rightfully his. So when David, when David, get this, when, when David defeats this company, the, the, to, 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 to the victor goes the spoils, they automatically sit there and said, we're not king, here you go. They give it to him, and then he immediately sits there and goes, well, I'm not the ultimate king, and he ends up giving it over to God. What does that teach us? It teaches us two things. First, that, that, that he acknowledged that God was the rightful owner of all things, that his is the victory. So the spoils, the victor, to the victor goes the spoils. He says it in two times in verse 6 and verse 14. says, and the Lord gave victory to David. And the Lord gave victory to David. So him simply sitting there going, this is yours and presenting it to God is an acknowledgement that God owns all things. He's the rightful heir to all things. Is this making any sense at all? Because I can't tell by, by your faith. Makes sense? All right, I got, I got a one. I'll take it. All right? And so, so it's not only that, but it also demonstrates his heart's affections, his heart's affections. The Torah commanded of the kings in Deuteronomy 17, 17, that the kings were not to accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. Why do you think that is? Because he knows the idolatrous heart of man. They store up all that silver and all that gold. What do they do? It, that becomes the source of their affections and not the God who created that that gold and that ultimate silver. So by him, David's willingness to give it to God was, did not hold, to, it uh, not only demonstrated his obedience, but even more, it demonstrated that he treasured God more than silver and gold. I think we see a great example of this in the Bible with Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus was a wee little man. 
A wee little man was he, but he was also a rich wee little man. Had a lot of money because he was a crook. He was a tax collector. He collected taxes from the Jewish people. He was Jewish. He would take it from them. He would give it to, to, to the Roman Empire, but he would take more than what he was supposed to take, and he would line his pockets with it. And so his fam- he must have loved the silver and gold because he gave up his family and all of his friends in order to be able to lay his hands on it. And so this is his wealth. This is what he loves. One day, he climbs up in a tree, sees Jesus. Jesus says, come down. I'm going to your house today. He goes to the house. He eats with him. After coming face to face with the Savior and creator of the world, what is his response? I'm going to give half of everything I have to the world. If I've robbed any man, I will give up to four times. I will repay four times. What happens? He demonstrates a very important truth. The quintessential mark of a fallen world is idolatry. Is that they no longer worship their creator, but they worship the created things. They see all these beautiful things, and instead of recognizing that there was a God behind these things and enjoying them, but ultimately enjoying God, the creator of them, and giving thanks to him, they ignore God altogether, and they just look at the created things, and they, they, they worship sexual relationships, and the human body, and, and wealth, and all of these things. These are the things that they want, completely ignoring God. The Bible says that when we fall, we are unrighteous. Unrighteous means we have the inability to recognize what is infinitely worthy. And so when God saves us by his grace, he makes us righteous, not because we're righteous in ourselves, but it's imputed righteousness from Christ, which now for the first time gives us the ability to see what is truly valuable. So now Christ, who we ignored before, we see him as far greater than anything in this world. That's why when we come, we give freely to him because we say, what you've given to me is rightfully yours and what you've given to me has nothing compared to the surpassing worth of knowing you. So, well, what do we do with that? He's going to talk about giving right now and we knew he was going to go there. (laughs) I almost don't want to go there, but I I want to be careful of why I want to go there. Look, Look, there are all kinds of discussions today about giving for believers, right? Some will sit there, half the congregation will be like, man, it's all a tithe, tithe is still real, it's not just in the Old Testament, it's for the New Testament as well. Other people say, no, we're under grace, we give out of grace. No matter where you fall in that, the one thing that you believe from the teaching of Old and New Testament is that God's people are supposed to be benevolent givers, that we are to give, and we are to give often, and we are to give benevolently. We're going to be generous givers to the things of God. We know all of that. But remember something, remember what the whole idea of this is about. Remember the purpose of the tithe in the Old Testament. Yes, it was to give resources to God's people to be able to do the work of the ministry, to be able to feed the poor, to be able to do, and to be able to have part in worship, to do all those things. But there was something instrumental to all of it. Its purpose was also to keep the people from idolatry. It was to work six days, but trust that God would ultimately supply for seven days. It was to be able to work and get your whole paycheck, but to be able to give a tenth or a portion to God to trust that he would supply the need for the rest. It's the same thing why David wasn't supposed to accumulate all of this, this gold and this silver, was to be able to sit there and say, I trust you, not in my bank account, and you are far more surpassing and wonderful than all of these things. Here, here, here's what I would just say about the issue thing, and I don't like to talk about giving because it seems like at some churches you go to, Every week, they have some way of inserting so much about giving. 
crazy amounts of testimonies and speech, and God will do this for you, and God will do that for you, and, and if you just do this, and if you just trust him enough, just go ahead and do that. And, and I'll, I'll tell you, if I was a lost person, that would stink to high heaven to me. But on the other side, I think that churches can make the mistake of not referencing it enough. Not so that they can get more money in the bank account, but because our willingness to be able to give freely and abundantly and consistently to God as a demonstration that the hearts of God's people recognize that He is King of kings, He is Lord of lords, He owns all, and the things that we used to find so wonderful pale in comparison to who He is now. Amen? The victory is the King's. To the victor goes the spoils. Now somebody is going to ask... Where is the grace? Where is the gospel in all of this? And I'm so glad you asked. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. In verse 2, it says, And he defeated Moab. By the way, we hired Ryan to read all the words I can't pronounce. That's why we brought him in here. So thank you. Ryan's thinking that's why we hired him. But to, anyway, and he defeated Moab. This is David, and he measured them with a line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to put to death, and one full line to be spared. Do you see the gospel? He took his enemies, these people who wanted nothing but to be able to destroy them, who were unwilling to be able to submit to him. He said, we're going to line all of you up. We're going to get a length of cord. don't know how long it is, but we're going to measure this out. We're to lengthen it up once and then another time, and all the men who laid down and were lined up in there, you are going to die. And then the third one, we're going to spare. You can go free. You can go on. You're free men. You can have life. And the biggest problem for us with a passage like this, we see the 20,000 men that he killed and plus that he killed, and, and we see him laying people down on the ground and measuring them out, and we just sit there and say, see, this is the kind of Bible I can't believe. And I can't believe in the type of God that ends up judging people and putting them to death. I just can't believe in that type of God. It's because you don't believe in God. What is atrocious is not, is not that God would judge sinners. What is audacious, what is surprising, what is beyond belief is that he doesn't judge all sinners. That for some who would repent and place their faith in Jesus Christ and the completed work of Jesus Christ, who would bend the knee demonstrating what true faith looks like, that he would allow them to live. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the good. It's not amazing that he would judge sinners. It's amazing that he would extend grace to sinners. If you've been extended grace to sinners, then let me ask you this. Are you bending the knee? Are you bending your knee in all things in submission to Jesus Christ? Whether the world says it's right or not, are you allowing him to be king reigning over your life? And are you freely giving? And I'm not talking about just, in, I'm talking about your whole life. I think, I think uh, one, one particular author uh, says it the best. He said this, he says, There is not a square inch of all existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, Mine. If you're born again, you're his. You're all of his. Your time, your money, your talents, your everything. Are we bending a knee? 
And are we recognizing and giving to God what is rightfully His? Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for this morning. Heavy message this morning. But it is the text of Scripture. And God, I have to believe that there are some who are here that need to hear this very message. How long, O oh Lord, where people toil and continue in their sin? How much grace do you have to show them? How much time do you have to show them before they will relent and repent and to turn? What will it ultimately take? What, it should have just taken a clear understanding of the cross. Lord, there are people who are here that not only have access to Bible-preaching churches, but they have spouses who love them and are praying for them, pastors who are love them and are praying for them. Family who is loving and praying for them. They've been given every benefit in the world, but yet they still won't come. God, will they be saved today by your grace and your mercy? Will they be so overwhelmed with the fact that you provide a way of escape, that they will cling to you, recognize you, bow to you, and present themselves as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is a reasonable service? We love you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? going to be a time of just kind of response and the, the altar is open if you just want to come and pray um i i don't want you in light of a message like this to go man if i go forward people are going to really think that i have problems no i think everybody sitting in the pew remaining there has problems everybody does would you agree all of us do it's why we need the grace and the mercy of god and so what I'm going to do, though, is I'm going to be down here. I would love to pray with you. I'd love to talk with you. If you want to know more about the gospel of Jesus Christ, would you come? If not, let's respond to the preaching of God's word, okay? Mm-hmm.